Amen. Thank you, Rebecca, for praying. Uh, it's good to add a welcome to the welcome Simon gave, and it's great to be back together in the book of Revelation. So if you have your Bible, please turn with me to Revelation chapter 1, <clears throat> verse 9, and we're going to work down through uh, to verse 20. You'll be familiar with this verse from Psalm 23. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. This has to be one of the most triumphant, defiant, and powerful statements of gospel hope in all of Scripture. What gives the author of Psalm 23 the confidence to make such a statement? One simple yet glorious truth expressed in five words. For you are with me. That's how I can walk through a shadowy valley that would make me anxious. For you are with me. How can we fight the fear and anxiety that lurks in all the shadowy valleys of life? By remembering that we have a strong, rugged, loving, sovereign shepherd who has committed to stay with us no matter what. And more than just stay with us, this shepherd has promised to lead us through those dark, anxiety-riddled valleys. Now, I start this way because this truth this truth of a shepherd who will stay with us no matter what, who will lead us through every valley we will ever face, this truth captures beautifully the message at the heart of the portion of Revelation we come to this morning. As we move out of the introduction and prologue into the main body of Revelation this morning, we are presented here immediately in verses 9 to 20 with a stunning vision of the glory of Jesus Christ. The main message of this vision is this, do not be afraid of what is ahead. This mighty Christ will be with you. He will keep you and he will lead you through everything that's ahead. Keep looking to him. His opening words in the whole book of Revelation are given to us in this section, in verse 17. They are beautiful words of reassurance to the anxious. Fear not. This is what Jesus wants us to hear this morning into our anxieties, into our fears. He wants us to hear these words of reassurance, fear not. This word of reassurance would have been greatly needed by the first readers of Revelation towards the end of the first century. At that time, 
the local Christians were experiencing lots of things that could have made them fearful and anxious. The propaganda machine of the Roman Empire declared everywhere the supremacy of Rome. The emperor of the day, Domitian, was presented as a divine power. If you were not willing to confess his lordship, you could face marginalization, persecution, even death. The surrounding culture for Christians towards the end of the first century would have been a very intimidating place to live a faithful Christian life. It would have been very easy to worry about your future and the future of your children and your families in such a context. With the fledgling churches being so early in their existence, I'm sure many people at times wondered about their prospects. Will this whole Christian thing just be stamped out in the end? by this rising force of anti-Christian thought. We can experience a similar sense of intimidation in our surrounding culture today. I'm sure you felt it. With the rising tide of secularism, we can feel at times intimidated about living our faith with appropriate openness in our culture. We find it difficult to be appropriately open about our faith in our workplaces in our universities, or amidst our families, often for fear of what people will think of us or other repercussions. And this kind of sense of intimidation can make us kind of retreat into ourselves and go quiet in our witness. Like the first century Christians, more generally, we can also just carry lots of general worries about other things in our surrounding culture. We can worry about our jobs. Our jobs can create loads of anxiety in our hearts. Our relationships, how we'll meet ends meet. We worry for our kids, we worry about the future. We can worry about so many things. We can actually worry often, will I remain faithful in this kind of context? Well, into this worry and anxiety, the Lord gives us this glorious vision of the sovereign Christ to reassure our anxious hearts, reminding us of the promise of his presence, the one who will stay with us, stand with us, who will hold us in his hand, will keep us through life and lead us through death. He wants us to know because he is with us, we don't have to fear that which we're fearing. Now, we could approach this vision from lots of different angles, but what I want to do this morning is just ask three questions of the vision given to John, a who, a what, and a why question. First, who's this vision for? Second, what is the content of the vision? What is the vision of? And third, why is the vision given? And that will bring us right back to helping us battle this fear that can so often smother us in our surrounding culture. So number one, who is the vision for? Well, before we're told who the vision is for, we're introduced to the recipient of the vision in verse 9, the Apostle John. If you look down at verse 9, you'll see we learn there that John has been exiled to a rocky little 
island prison, which was some 30 miles off the southwest coast of Ephesus in the Aegean Sea, western Turkey. Roman Empire officials of the day would send off those they deemed to be a threat to the empire. They would send them off to islands like these so that they could get rid of them without making martyrs of them, making too much of a fuss of them. What was John's crime? What had led him to being exiled onto the Isle of Patmos? Well, he tells us that he had been put there on account of the Word of God and the testimony of Jesus. Clearly, his preaching ministry, his witness for Christ was standing out and causing some unrest among the Roman authorities. I find this deeply challenging. John was sharing Christ in a context where he could get in trouble for it. But he didn't go quiet. We can share Christ in our surrounding culture here, and generally we won't get exiled away off to Rathlin Island or somewhere like that. And yet we struggle to share and be appropriately open in our culture. I find that really challenging. Well, from this place of exile, he writes this letter to several churches in Asia Minor, modern-day Western Turkey. They were facing the same kind of persecution, living in the same context that John was living in. And look at how he identifies with them in his introduction in verse 9. I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus. That's a rich statement that summarizes the life of Christian discipleship in many ways. In Christ, we're the kingdom family. In Christ, we will face tribulation in this age together. We're to expect it. In Christ, we are called to patient endurance. Patient endurance is our calling in a fallen world. In verse 10, John continues, after introducing himself, he says, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a voice like a trumpet. John is in exile and alone, but not alone. He's enjoying spiritual communion with God in prayer and worship on the day of Christ's resurrection Sunday, and he's taken up in the Spirit, in a very special way, where he experiences this vision. He hears behind him a voice like a trumpet, and that is reminding us of the great revelation of the majesty of God on Mount Sinai in the book of Exodus. In verse 11, we are told what this trumpet-like voice said, write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches. And then they're listed to Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. Why this specific group of churches? Well, perhaps they were leading churches in their region. But I think more significantly, as we've already seen, that number seven in the book of Revelation speaks to us of wholeness and fullness. So these churches, in a sense, represent all churches then and now. 
We see that in chapters 2 and 3 at the end of each of the specific words to the specific churches, we hear, let the church, let, let the, let the church hear what the Spirit says. Um, let's just see what it says there. Um, at the end of each one, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So this is addressed not just to these individual churches, but to all churches down through the years. So, who is this vision for? This is a vision that God wants to be recorded and shared with local churches, then and now. That means this is for us. This has been written down, preserved in Scripture, and so God wants us to receive this revelation, this vision of Christ and everything else that is in this book. This makes this incredibly relevant to us. Now, let's think secondly what this vision is of. If this vision is for us Christians gathered in local churches down through the years, we have to now see what the vision is of. And we begin to learn what it is of in verse 12. John says, Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. Now, does anyone watch the TV show, The Voice? This makes me think of The Voice. They, these judges all have their backs turned, and there's someone singing, and if they like the singing, they hit this big button, and their chair turns so that they can see who it is behind the voice. We'll hear John turns to hear this voice. And then he says, on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands. Verse 13, and in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. Now, we're told later on in verse 20 that the lampstands represent local churches. And just like the priest in the Old Testament who tended lampstands in the temple, so this one like a son of man is doing his priestly work of caring for the lampstands. It's a beautiful vision of Christ, the unseen Christ who is in our midst, tending local churches to make sure that they burn brightly. Notice this one in the midst of the lampstands is referred to as one like a son of man. Now, that's a title from the book of Daniel, where Daniel has a vision of this one like a son of man who has all authority over the universe. In verses 13 to 16 of Revelation 1, we're given a description of the majesty of this Son of Man, and this is the focus of the vision. So what is the vision of? Is it, it is a vision of the majesty of the Son of Man who is in the midst of the lampstands. We are told first that he was clothed with a long robe. This is the priestly robe of the high priest in the Old Testament. In the Roman system of governance, the length of the robe spoke of one's authority and high office. This son of man has a long robe reaching right down to his feet. 
We are told that he has a golden sash around his chest. Now, that doesn't mean he's an orange man. It's a description of a royal ruler. This one in the midst of the lampstands is not just a priest, he is a king. In verse 14, we're told that his hair was white like wool, like snow. Now, this is again takes us back to Daniel's vision in chapter 7. This is Daniel, in Daniel 7, we have a vision of the Ancient of Days, God himself seated on his throne in glory. And back in Daniel 7, we read, his clothing was white as snow and the hair of his head like pure wool. Now, John is not confusing the Son of Man with the Ancient of Days, but he's helping us to see this Son of Man is truly God, truly divine. The white hair of God speaks of his eternal wisdom. Look at these words about the penetrating gaze of the Son of Man. His eyes were like a flame of fire. You know, as we were singing, this just was constantly in my mind because I've been studying this this week. I just sat and thought of the all-penetrating eyes of the Son of Man set on us this morning, his eyes like a flame of fire. Seeing all, knowing all, knowing everything about every one of us. Verse 15, his feet were like burnished bronze refined in a furnace. This one has feet that provide a stable foundation. He has been in the furnace of affliction himself, and now he can give us a foundation that is immovable. Then the next part of verse 15, his voice, we are told, was like the roar of many waters. I was able to visit the Niagara Falls once, and as you approach the falls, before you see it, you can hear the majestic roar of the water. And here, the roar of many waters communicates something of the power and authority with which the Son of Man speaks. Then in verse 16, we're told in his right hand, he held the seven stars. Now, this was a wonderful message that corrected the lie being propagated by Rome at the end of the first century. The emperor of the day, Domitian, had a son who died in infancy. And Domitian said that not only was he himself the divine one as emperor, but his son who died was divine. And he had gone into the other afterlife where he would now reign over all. And so Domitian had coins minted that had a picture of himself on the front and on the back, his infant son sitting on a globe. And what were above his son's head? Seven stars, depicting the fact that he reigned over the cosmos. In fact, Dom, if you can put it up on the screen there, I, I, I just thought it would be helpful to include a picture of these. On the left, the head of Domitian. On the right, there's the sun sitting on the globe, reigning as the divine sun, and you can count the seven stars there that he's holding in his hands. And what's the inscription on the coin? The divine Caesar, supreme commander, son of Domitian. Thanks, Dom. You can take that down. 
So here, this vision is saying, no, no, it's not the son of the emperor who rules sovereign over the cosmos. It's this one like a son of man. He holds the seven stars. He reigns over all things. Then at the end of verse 16, we're told that from his mouth came a two-edged sword. His word penetrates and lays bare. And finally then, serving as a kind of summary statement, we read his face, at the end of verse 16, his face was like the sun shining in full strength. Not just like the sun shining, but like the sun shining in full strength, radiant glory emanating from the Son of Man. I love to think of the transfiguration at this point. Do you remember when the disciples, that select few, got a glimpse of the, the veil of Christ's humanity being pulled back for a moment? And, and what do they see? Dazzling light emanating from the glory of Christ. So what is this vision of? Well, it's a vision of the unshakable, unflappable, mighty Christ, given to show us our only rock of refuge in an unstable world. And just before we think now of what, why the vision was given, I just want to ask you, are you thinking rightly about the glorious Christ whom you worship? Don't be thinking of, as we're going to be thinking about at Christmas often, gentle Jesus, meek and mild, who wouldn't say boo to a goose. Yes, he is gentle and lowly, but he is also the lion of the tribe of Judah, ferocious in his holiness, resplendent in his majesty, never domesticate him to less than what he is, the holy Son of God. Let us worship him in reverence and awe, but also with joy, knowing that this ferocious lion is for us, steps in front of us to defend us. Our rock who shades us from the burning sun of the wrath of God, the only place of cool shade for us, from the scorching sun of God's just wrath against sin. So who is the vision for? Well, it's, it's for us. What is the vision of? It is a vision of the majesty, of the glory of the Son of Man. Now, why is it given? Well, we see this in our last section where we see John's initial response to the vision and Jesus himself unpacking the vision. Verse 17, John says, When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. Now, that is typically how people react in Scripture when they catch a glimpse of the unfiltered glory of God. But then John tells us of the beautiful response of Jesus 
to John's fear. But he laid his hand on me. Now you're to see not just majesty, but now gentleness. Ultimate power. A hand that could just wipe out all things in, a, in an instant. And you're to see that sovereign, powerful hand that holds the seven stars gently being led on the back of a fearful servant. The sovereign hand of reassurance, and then you get the first words of Christ in the book. Fear not. Fear not. Now, that fear not does not mean just don't fear me. It does mean that, but not just that. It stands here at the head of the book of Revelation to refer to all the things that John and the churches would have been fearing in their age of anxiety. The fear of, of the rising pressure of Rome, their surrounding culture trying to stamp out Christianity. It's kind of like our rising secular age that wants to marginalize and squeeze us out of the public conversation. This is the Lord Jesus saying, think of all the things you're fearing. Of fearing. Think of yourself, all the things you've brought into church this morning that you're worried about, that you're anxious about. Here the sovereign Christ says to you, with respect to that thing that's in your heart just now that you're worried about, fear not. And then he gives us three reasons for why we do not have to fear. Number one, the end of verse 17, fear not for I am the first and the last. I am the first and the last. Jesus is saying, I am sovereign over all your cares. I have the first word over all things, and I have the last word over all things. In the end, after all history is said and done, when all kingdoms have raged and risen and fallen, in the end, it will be this mighty Christ and His church that is the last one standing. Fear not, I am the sovereign Lord of history and the sovereign Lord of your life. I haven't forgotten, I haven't taken my eyes off you. Second reason we don't have to fear, verse 18, I am the living one who has the keys of death. Keys, that means authority. Jesus says, I have the authority, the authority over your life and over your death. I'm the gatekeeper, the determiner of the moment of your death. I am the one who has the keys. The one who has the keys controls access to that thing. Jesus has the keys to death. He controls the entrance to death and the exit from death. Death may want to swallow you up, but Jesus has the key to let you out. 
How did he get the keys? He passed through death himself. And he conquered death. He snatched them from the hands of fallenness, from the kingdom of Satan and darkness, through his death. He says, I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore. Now, how encouraging this would have been for John, who was facing possible death on Patmos. How encouraging must this have been at the opening part of the book of Revelation when the saints of the day were facing potential martyrdom for their faith. And how encouraging is this for any of us who may be fearful of dying? You know, cancer doesn't determine the day of your death. Jesus does. Persecutors don't determine the day of your death. Jesus does. In fact, as one has said, we're immortal until God's work for us on earth is done. Jesus knows the end from the beginning. No one will take your life ahead of the day appointed for your life to end on this earth. And as you pass through the valley, the shadowy valley of death, you don't have to fear evil. Because that same majestic, glorious Christ who leads you through life will also lead you through death. There'll never be a moment where he doesn't hold your hand and guide you through. Fear not, I am the living one. I have the keys of death. And then third, final reason for why we don't have to fear. A little more subtle, but it really is here. You don't have to fear, says Jesus, because I am in your midst and I'm holding you fast, no matter what. Verse 20 reveals to us the mystery of what the seven stars in Jesus' right hand and the seven lampstands signify in the vision. Jesus explains here that the seven stars he holds in his right hand are the angels of the seven churches. Now these angels are heavenly beings closely identified with the churches they represent and help. Like in Daniel, when we were studying that series uh, a while back, we learned of the ministry of angels and the spiritual warfare that goes on behind the scenes of what happens on earth. Here we are reminded that the church has a heavenly host of angels who are dispatched by the Lord to help serve the church on earth. These angels are so closely associated with the local churches that when we read of Jesus holding these seven stars in his hand, we can also understand that to mean that Jesus holds his people, his churches in his powerful right hand. This, of course, is confirmed in passages like John 10, where Jesus says that no one can snatch any of his people ever out of his hand. And in fact, when we move into chapter 2, verse 1, and we see the addresses to the individual churches, each time we get an address to the angel of the church in Ephesus. And remember, this whole revelation was given by the Father 
to Jesus, who made it known to an angel, who made it known to John. So we see that mediatorial work of angels continually through the book of Revelation as all of history is viewed from a heavenly perspective. So you see the angels, the the spiritual beings, the fallen uh, forces, you see it all in the book of Revelation. But here we're mysteriously told of these angels that are so closely associated with the local churches that when we hear of Jesus holding them, we can understand that Jesus is holding the local churches in his hands. Reminds me of John 15 where Jesus said, spoke of the vine and the branches and he spoke of his his father as a gardener. This understanding that our God tends the vineyard, tends local churches. The Son of Man, the priest in this vision, is in the midst of the lampstands, tending his local churches. But then in verse 20, the last thing we're told in this vision is that the seven lampstands are the seven churches. Now, there's a wee bit of bookending going on here. Sometimes you see this in passages where it helps us to understand kind of the main thrust of the passage. Do you remember how the vision opened Back in verse 12, John said, I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning I saw seven golden lampstands, and in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man. And here, right at the end of the vision, we're taken back and told that these lampstands are the seven churches. So the message is that this sovereign Christ, who we've been considering in this vision, he's the one who stands in the midst of, of his people, tending and helping the Christians who make up local churches, helping them to keep going even when the going is tough. Maybe a way to think about this is to think of that moment in Mark chapter 6 when the disciples were in a boat struggling to make headway in the storm. Jesus comes to them walking on the water, a vision of his sovereign divine majesty And then what does he say to them? Take heart. I am. It is I. Do not be afraid. And then what does he do? He gets into the boat with them. The sovereign, majestic Christ is in the boat with his people. That's what Revelation 1 is here to remind us of. This glorious, powerful Christ is in the boat with us as we move through the storm-tossed seas of this life. Or as Psalm 23 puts it, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Why? For you are with me. This is a vision to open the whole message of Revelation that proclaims to a weary and battered church and weary, battered, anxious Christians, do not forget this important truth. In the end, Jesus will stay with you. He will hold you in his hand and he will never let you go, ever. What are the implications of this vision for us today, tomorrow morning as you wake up and go into another day at work? Well, I think one simple implication 
of this vision is this. With respect to everything that makes you fearful and anxious, keep trying to lift your eyes beyond your circumstances to this mighty Christ. Try to fix your eyes on him. John Owen has helpfully said, it is by beholding the glory of Christ by faith that we are spiritually edified and built up in this world. For as we behold his glory, the life and power of faith grow stronger and stronger. So to behold this glorious Christ, just to ponder him, to think on him, to think just of those eyes like a flame of fire, to just ponder his glory, to see him by faith, the Spirit works as you behold the glory of Christ to make the life and power of your faith grow stronger. Again, think back to an account in the life of the disciples. Remember that moment where Peter was beckoned to come and walk on the water with Jesus in the storm. Peter was doing great when he looked at the sovereign Christ. But when he looked more at the circumstances around him and the storm than he did at Christ, he started to sink. Maybe. One of the reasons you've been so anxious and fearful is that you've been just fixated on the storm around you. Maybe you need to do what the psalmist did in Psalm 121. You need to lift up your eyes to the hills and see where your help comes from. And you can say, my help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. If your fear is work-related, look to Christ. If your fear is health-related, Look to Christ. If your fear is remaining single, look to Christ. If it's loneliness, look to Christ. If it's anxiety or depression, look to Christ. If it's related to your spouse or your kids, you're worried about them, look to Christ. If it's your fear about an uncertain future, look to Christ. If your fear is about the state of this world and where it's going, look to Christ. If your fear is the rising cost of living, look to Christ. Is your fear condemnation because of your sin? Look to Christ. Is your fear unforgiven sin? Look to Christ. Look to Christ. Look to Christ. Look to Christ. He is the first medicine your weary and anxious soul needs. Only beholding the glory of Christ satisfies the deepest fears of our hearts. His hand of reassurance is laid upon you this morning. He holds you in his hands. He's not going to let you go. He'll hold and lead you through life. He'll hold and lead you through death. He will hold and lead you through whatever your shadowy valley of anxiety is. Whatever's ahead of you that makes you anxious, He's with you. 
In fact, here's a closing statement that I want to end with, and I want you to take away into your anxieties and fears that are ahead of you this week. Tomorrow as you wake up, and perhaps the flood of worries just falls upon you again, in that thing that you're worried about, I want you to say this to yourself, for this I have Christ. For this I have Christ. Whatever it is, Christ is in the boat in the storm with you, saying, take heart. I'm here. Don't be afraid. He leads us through paths of righteousness for his name's sake. All the paths of the Lord are faithfulness, steadfast love, and mercy. All his paths, all the paths he leads you down are paths of righteousness for his name's sake. He walks with you, he stays with you, he holds your hand, even when you're terrified and racked with anxiety, he's holding you. You might not see it, but he's there. Like the end of Psalm 77 where we read, as the Israelites walked through the sea that parted in front of them, the Lord led his people like a flock, though his footprints were not seen. The unseen Christ is with his people always. Think of it now, by faith, the unseen Christ in the midst of this church represented as a lampstand. The unseen Christ is here now, tending us, tending you through the ministry of his word, tending you, helping you, comforting you as the spirit of Christ ministers. He's here. He is wherever local churches are gathering. The, the unseen Christ stands as the priest tending the lamps. It's amazing. His hand of reassurance is here for you. He is as we reflect on this glorious vision and what it's for, he is an incomparable and altogether amazing Savior. Let's pray. Father, however we stand before you in this moment, I pray that this vision of the glory of Christ would be illuminated in front of us and that for a moment we would just take in even now something of the holiness of Christ. Lord Jesus, you stand in our midst. We just steady ourselves and thank you that you say, fear not. I'm the first and the last, the living one. I died, but behold, I'm alive forevermore and I have the keys of death. Don't be afraid. Help us to respond rightly in this moment. And as we behold the glory of Christ, may our faith grow stronger. And if there's someone here and one of their fears is that they still have unforgiven sin and they don't know forgiveness, oh, I pray that they would recognize that this sovereign Christ can be their savior and not one they have to be terrified of. Though he is a lion, 
he can be to his people, a tame lion. One who is good, one who is for us, one who stands in our defense. So we worship this lion in reverence and awe and also with joy. Help us to respond rightly and open our hearts to him, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we're going to respond now by singing uh, of lifting our eyes, turning our eyes to this mighty Christ. So let's stand together and praise him.
now may the Lord bless you and keep you and make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you his peace in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen.